On two separate occasions, I've had the chance to visit the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. And if you've ever been there, and if you've ever actually been to Germany, I suppose, as well, and visited these very sites, you know what a harrowing experience it is to read stories, to see pictures, to walk in recreated rooms, and to come face to face with the mind-numbing realities of Hitler's Germany. Now, all the exhibits that you walk through are meant to overwhelm your senses with a warning about the consequences of ideas. For years, before Adolf Hitler became the Chancellor of Germany, he was obsessed with the idea of race. In his speeches and writings, Hitler spread his beliefs in racial purity and in the superiority of the Germanic race, which he called an Aryan master race. He pronounced that his race must remain pure in order to one day overtake the world. And for Hitler, the ideal Aryan was blonde, blue-eyed, and tall. And when Hitler and the Nazis came to power, these beliefs became the government ideology and were spread in publicly displayed posters on the radio, in classrooms, in movies, and in newspapers. The Nazis began to put their ideology into practice with the support of German scientists who be believed that the human race could be improved by limiting the reproduction of people considered inferior. Mass sterilizations were horrifically administered and targeted people, those who weren't anywhere close to Aryan, at least didn't appear to be, and especially those with disabilities. Hitler and other Nazi leaders viewed the Jews not as a religious group, but as a poisonous race, which lived off of other races and weakened them. After Hitler took power, Nazi teachers and school classrooms began to apply the principles of racial science, as they called it. They measured skull size and nose length and recorded the color of their pupils' hair and eyes to determine whether students belonged to the true Aryan race. And what began as a simple idea grew into humiliating schoolroom tests for Jewish boys and girls and would eventually swell into the systematic state-sponsored murder of over six million Jews, men, women, and children. The gas chambers of Auschwitz began with the sin of racism. And now, moms, I've given you something to talk about over your Mother's Day lunch as you ask your family, why would the preacher really begin a Mother's Day sermon with literally the most depressing analogy you can conjure up? I'm truly sorry, at least the children sang. But <laughs> when it comes to illustrating the destructive power of racism, the Holocaust nearly tops the list, at least of recent memory. So the text before us this morning, Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, describes how God has reconciled Jews and Gentiles to Himself 
and to one another through the cross of Christ and how they now are one unified spiritual family in which God is pleased to dwell by His Spirit. That is a summary of where we're heading this morning. Before we make any more progress, would you bow with me in prayer? Father, channels are not important. Vessels are not important. Distributors of information are not significant. What is significant now is that your word is heard and received with open hearts. pray that for my own heart. I pray that for all of us gathered today. I pray that Paul's words, which are your words, to a particular Gentile audience would rest upon our souls with a fresh application and a fresh ring that we might be inspired and encouraged at what you have done through your only son, Jesus. May our hearts soar in gratitude for these truths as we consider them today. Christ we pray. Amen. Well, as we've already studied in previous weeks, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is glorious. Paul is laying a foundation for what God is doing on a cosmic scale in the heavenlies, Paul will say, to bring glory to himself through the Son by the Spirit. But how is God going to bring himself glory? Paul tells us at the beginning of chapter 2 that he will do this by making alive spiritually dead sinners, by resurrecting sons of disobedience, children of wrath, by making these people alive in Christ. He will do this so that they become trophies of his immeasurable grace. Last week we meditated on the the precious foundation of the gospel, that we are saved from the just penalty of our sin by grace and through faith and in Christ as a free gift from God, and that we are unable to earn this gift through good works. This gospel is so transformational in the soul of repentant men and women that it creates a new humanity, one that now lives for the glory of God, and displays the transformation the gospel brings through a life of good works. So Paul's argument continues on as we transition to his next paragraph, beginning in verse 11. As he hooks a connector word at the beginning of this next paragraph and takes us down a related but a different path. And we read in verses 11 through 12, the call for Gentiles to remember their former exclusion from Christ. So we read in verses 11 through 12, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So Israel is called to remember. Paul calls us to remember. This would have been a frequent and very spiritual call by God to His people. To remember was a a very spiritual act 
It was a command to return your heart to what matters most to God. It was a moral movement of the mind to not forget or live as though you forget. All of God's gracious acts, His words, His promises, and His works to His people. Don't forget. Before Moses leads the people, the Hebrew people, out of slavery in Egypt and through the waters of salvation in the Red Sea, he charges them in Exodus 13, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. So he's saying, commit to memory the extraordinary day of deliverance that is upon us. Never lose sight of its significance. And time and time again throughout the Old Testament, God will call Israel to remember their bondage in Egypt and how God has rescued them. A similar call is being made here. Remember being excluded from God so that you'll never forget the greatest deliverance possible in Christ This exclusion, however, was based on both physical and spiritual circumstances. So what does the text say here? Gentiles were physically excluded from God's people due to circumcision. So verse 11 makes it clear that from an external perspective, Gentiles are outside of the covenant community since they do not bear the sign of the covenant that God has given to Abraham. In many cases, Jews were mocked and scorned by Gentiles for such a seemingly foolish and pointless ritual, even barbaric. In Genesis 17, God states to Abraham specifically, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And this sign was then made a part of the law of Moses several hundred years later as the command is reiterated in Leviticus chapter 12. So however, Paul, who once boasted in the fact that he himself had been circumcised the eighth day, as a stellar Jewish record he has, well, here he seems to tip his hand in the direction of showing the worthlessness now of circumcision when he adds the somewhat negative phrase, which is made in the hands by flesh. As if to say, this physical act is is merely an action done by humans. This is not to say that Paul's not fully aware that this sign of the covenant was always intended to be a symbol of the inner transformation of the heart. In Deuteronomy 13, we read, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So Paul knows this. His point here is to strike at the notion that an external act alone has power to grant a person membership into God's family and to underscore the fact that in light of Christ's finished work, this externality is no longer needed. But Gentiles are not excluded merely for physical or external reasons alone. As he continues in verse 12, there are spiritual and internal realities that are at odds with God. 
as he delivers five different but related circumstances that excluded Gentiles from the people of God. He rattles them off here quickly. Gentiles are separated from Christ. They are separated from the Messiah. And the Gentile mindset, the very notion that a person may need a Savior would very likely have been lost on them entirely. Not to even mention hope in a promised deliverer if promises have not even been laid down, for which was the hope of the Jews. They're separated from Christ. Gentiles are also alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So if Paul's point in Romans chapter 9 is to highlight all the unique blessings that Jews have when he writes, to them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the worship and the promises, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. If that is Paul's point there, then this list here of the Gentiles is the other side of the coin. Gentiles are alienated from all of these unique blessings. Gentiles are also strangers to the covenants of promise. So having no rights or privileges of citizenship, the covenants of promise do not flow to outsiders. That is to say, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and even the promise of a new covenant that Jeremiah and others make throughout the Old Testament. All these that entail a future hope in God's blessing on His people. These are the promises not embraced or known by Gentiles. They have no hope, Paul writes. They are without hope. The consequence of alienation from citizenship and God's kingdom results in a hopeless, futile existence. The reason being is that hope is something bound exclusively, biblically speaking, to the fulfilled promise of these very covenants. This is where hope lies. That is why salvation is said to be by grace through faith. And faith is the substance of things hoped for. In their spiritual darkness, Gentiles do not have this hope. They are without faith. They are without the grace of God. Gentiles are lastly without God in this world. Perhaps the worst but not unexpected outcome is this bleak depiction that Gentiles are without God in this world. The Gentile Greek and, and Romans were most certainly not atheists. That is not what it means here. They are without a concept of God, not at all. In fact, they would have harshly criticized those who did not believe in certain gods. But they were indeed without a relationship to the one true God. And in that sense, they are without God in this world. Separated, alienated, estranged, hopeless, godless. These are the descriptions that Paul paints of the Gentile condition. This is life outside of Jesus. Let's not think that this is God, though, barring the door per se against those poor Gentiles who would otherwise gladly join God's kingdom. Not at all. 
This is exactly what Gentiles desire. If we bear in mind the beginning of chapter 2 that we considered last week, these are sons of disobedience and children of wrath. And yet, we have to remember, this was all of us, every one of us here. This is your condition prior to Christ. Regardless of your upbringing, your privileges, your exposure to the gospel and the truths of God, all of us fit the bill on this description at one point. With a turn of the page that parallels the kind of shift that we saw last week in verse 4 of chapter 2, but God being rich in mercy. We see this, a similar shift by Paul here once again. Here he calls us to rejoice in our present inclusion with Christ. We read in verses 13 through 18, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So what are these unifying accomplishments of Christ's cross? Now in Christ those who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So proximity to God meant a great deal in the Old Testament and to God's covenant people. Nearness to God was something that Adam and Eve knew with unhindered joy. After sin entered the garden, walls and fences, barriers, perimeters became theologically necessary. God would still remain accessible, but only under limited strict terms because of man's unholiness and sinfulness. God told Israel to build a tabernacle and later a temple that would signify His holy presence in their midst. Within the tabernacle tent, there was a holy of holies in which it was only accessed once a year by the high priest himself. This was within the tabernacle itself, which had an altar of incense, golden lampstand, the bread of the presence, which were not accessible to just any Israelite. Proximity matters. Thick veils separated each portion of the tabernacle, making it abundantly clear access to God was not a cavalier exercised exercise enjoyed by just anyone. But within the nation of Israel itself, there was indeed a, a perimeter of safety as we continue to extend these circles in that only God's people could claim His protection and His promises. And to be outside the camp of Israel was to be cast out to a place of insecurity, subjected to not merely shame, but dangers of all kinds. 
One's only hope would be to be brought near to Israel's God. But this, as we said, was severely limited. Now certainly, it is true that that non-Jews would regularly convert and become God-fearers or proselytes, worshipers of Yahweh. But Paul's game-changing statement here in Ephesians 2 is that there are no longer any special conditions to be fulfilled. Circumcision is no more. One's ethnicity is of no significance. One new humanity is underway. And nearness to God is being restored by means of Christ. Jews and Gentiles are now at peace through Christ's broken body. Some of the nastiest words that are, have ever been stated have been delivered by Jews about Gentiles and vice versa. Jews believe Gentiles to be God's fuel for hell. Pious Jews were not to ever assist a Gentile woman with giving birth, for this was thought to simply be assisting the enemy with enlarging their ranks. There was even a popular phrase, the best of serpents crush, the best of Gentiles kill. On the other side of things, Greeks considered anyone who didn't speak their language barbarians, just outright, and enemies. Romans and Greeks were natural enemies themselves, and this clash of nations amounted to intense national hatred and animosity. Now, with shocking force, Paul states that Jesus Christ is Himself our peace. He's done what seemed impossible. He has reconciled warring parties, making them one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. One of the most notorious characters that struggled with accepting God's heart to save the nations of the earth was the prophet Jonah. When God told Jonah to go call the Ninevites to repentance, he nearly flips out, right? And perhaps there's a twinge of natural fear because, as we know, they were ancient savages of, of the ancient world. But more powerful, though, was his deep-seated disgust at the thought of sharing his Yahweh with these pagans. Even after Jonah seems to have genuinely turned from his rebellion and after given the second opportunity by God, he fulfills his duty to preach repentance to Nineveh. And we assume all is well until the surprise chapter, chapter 4, when God exposes Jonah's heart. A wicked nation repenting of their sins and turning to God is usually a good thing, not to Jonah. This is apparently his worst nightmare, but it is precisely what God wanted him to see. And sometimes, like Jonah, we get our perspective so messed up that we'd rather, like Jonah, get ourselves all situated right there, ready to watch God just light up the wicked. And when it doesn't happen, I might as well die. As early as God's covenant with Abraham in which he promised that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him, God has been gradually working 
to save individuals from every nation and tongue. But how, we must ask, how has Jesus Christ torn down this wall of hostility? Verse 15 states, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And Paul tells us here that Christ has abolished the law. But how does this square with how Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount? That He has not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. Well, first off, we need to just strike the idea from our minds that this is just another vote in favor of the incongruities of the Bible, and that the Bible doesn't make sense, and it has inconsistencies everywhere, so there you go. There's just another one. The Bible certainly does not conform to its own teaching. On the contrary, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount can be understood to mean that with the coming of Messiah, the Old Covenant is actually validated all the more as true and trustworthy and reliable because it's done its job. Like a guardian or a custodian, as Galatians will teach us, it prepared God's people to see what they needed to see, His moral character and their gross inability to please God. And as an outworking of that, their need for a Savior who could get it done in a way their moral record could never do. So in this sense, Jesus brings the law to its completed end. It has served its purpose. It has run its course. And that which it was pointing to has arrived. In other words, the law is not abolished in the sense that it is made invalid or deserves to be watered up and thrown away and expunged from our memories and seen as an awful, terrible thing. No. But just as the Old Covenant anticipates the New, so the Law of Moses anticipates the Law of Christ and finds fulfillment in Messiah. And by doing so, as one author puts it, the New eclipses the Old. And with this in mind, Paul's idea in Ephesians makes better sense. Paul uses a different Greek word here in Ephesians than the word used in Matthew by Jesus, still translated abolish, but but have slightly different meanings. And Paul has in mind that the law would be abolished in the sense that it should now be set aside in deference to what is now far superior. So Jesus worked to reconcile Jew and Gentile Making peace through His atoning sacrifice is now the basis of our relationship to God, not the law. Not the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So this is the groundbreaking change, and this is why Paul can say the law, as the former foundation of one's relationship to God, is done away with. It is no longer in force. Verse 16 we, re- we see that by becoming the means of reconciliation and this bridge by which this new humanity can now relate rightly to God, Jesus Christ creates in Himself one new man, so making peace. Jews and Gentiles now reconciled to God in one 
body through the cross, killing the hostility. So like a courageous warrior, Jesus poured himself even out unto death. He endured the cross, reviling not his opponents, pardoning sinners up to nearly his last breath, and he won peace at so great a cost. Ours is a day in which peace is is cheap. Peace is understood most of the time merely as just the absence of conflict or the illusion of kindness or whatever needs to be said that can be accompanied by the emotion of niceness, whatever that is. But this is not how Jesus defines true peace because it is not how He won peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. The cross has killed the hostility. The cross has killed the hostility. As one scholar puts it, the slain becomes the slayer. Noting how our slain Messiah has put Himself to death. Jesus has purchased peace. And the result is one new family. In verse 17, Paul reiterates how Christ came and He preached peace to those who were far off as well as peace to those who were near. So here he mentions again these categories of far and near that he already referred to in verse 13. And Paul seems to have in mind the text that was read earlier by Brian in Ephesians, or Isaiah 57, which states, peace, peace to the far and the near, says the Lord. It would seem Christ has fulfilled this as He has brought peace to Jews who were near, who repent, trust in His salvation, as well as to Gentiles far away. Jesus' earthly ministry was mainly focused on preaching a message of repentance to those of the household of Israel. But with the sending of the Spirit and to those in the ministry of the apostles and the prophets, the foundation that Paul will elaborate on just a few verses later, and next week will, unless some of you thought, you can't have an A without a B. I know. The B is coming next week as we organize our thoughts as far as what Paul's saying. But this is the hope that this, the ministry now of the apostles and the prophets, the foundation that he'll mention just a few verses later, preached peace through these servants to the Gentiles far off. This is the progress of redemption. And in verse 18, we see the consequence of this peacemaking ministry of Christ in which Jews and Gentiles both have access in one Father or to the Father in one Spirit. What a beautiful short verse that glorifies our triune Lord. This is reminiscent of Paul's teaching to the Corinthians along the same lines, for we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. So Paul will say more at the end of this chapter about the Spirit's role as the people of God grow into a holy temple that is a fitting dwelling place for God through His Spirit. Pulling these thoughts together, you most of us, I would imagine, Gentiles in this room. What were you? You were separated. 
alienated, estranged, hopeless, godless. This is your condition. But Christ Jesus killed the hostility between you and God and between you and every other Christian so that you might come to know the joy of being brought near to God's presence through Christ. The Bible was not written to us. Ephesians was not written for us so that we might merely have a refresher on some basic knowledge about who Jesus is and what He did. The whole of Scripture is to get something done in us. It's to affect change. So what is it this morning that God wants to get done from this passage in you and in me? That's the question we need to ask. Well, all this talk about far and near, aliens and citizens, strangers to God's promises and so on and so forth ought to cause some real soul-searching in Christians and non-Christians alike. Ask yourself, what kingdom are you living for? Are you willfully choosing to live without God, deluding yourself into believing that you can actually find hope and purpose in this life without God? I recently heard a secular author interviewed about a, a book he recently wrote about restoring ritual to your life. He was quick to downplay religious ritual, but was mainly advocating, you know, morning stretches and quiet meditation and frequenting the same lakes and the same scenic overviews, and to attach positivity to those repeated actions. Now, it's not a terrible idea. I'm not discounting the concept per se, but if emotional and psychological health is, is limited to merely actions that I already like to do, that I'm just going to do over and over again, I may as well be a hamster in a wheel going nowhere but believing I'm accomplishing something valuable. If you know you are outside of Christ today, would you weigh the value, do an assessment about the foundation of what you're placing your ultimate hope in. Just how sturdy is your ultimate standard that you've built your life upon? Will it last? If there, is there not a hunger in your soul to know Christ, someone this powerful, someone this impactful, someone that can get <laughs> what ancient history is culminating into, the promises of a Messiah, don't you long to know Him, to know the person who can forgive all your sins while loving you unconditionally still? Wow. To know the person who can fill you with hope and peace and transform not only your relationship to Him, but also your relationships to everyone else. Do you long for new community? A family. The family of God that embraces one another, not on shared interests or life stages or ethnicity or social status alone, but because of what Jesus did to save us. God intends for you to hear His gracious call today and to respond. Perhaps that's what He wants to get done in you today. 
God's children also are in need of change when we grapple with this passage. First, it must not be lost on us that we should never cease to remember. That was the call last week. There was a call to remember. To remember our former condition as Gentiles separated from Christ. We were separated, alienated, estranged, hopeless, godless. This act of remembrance at some point should make us weep for joy, erupting in prayers of thanksgiving and songs of praise, for we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Do you love to sing of the cross? You may enjoy singing, but when your love and gratitude and thanksgiving for Christ is cherished and treasured within your heart, your singing will take on a whole different dynamic. I hope you enter each and every Lord's Day remembering your old position, but ready to sing songs of the redeemed, of your new identity in Christ, with hearts full of gratitude. Secondly, treasure the richness of God's global family. From this text, learn to treasure the richness of God's global family. Seize opportunities, even within our congregation here, to learn from brothers and sisters who have come to our country and now our church from other parts of the world, other parts of Europe or Russia or Africa or South America. Learn their stories of how God has saved and sustained them and then serve them with all the patience and kindness of any other member in God's family. Our society is fixated on diversity, no doubt. We hear it a lot. And in many cases, it's a positive thing insofar as it decries the kind of Nazi-like racism that has harmed so many over the past century. But oftentimes, this diversity is a delusion. It's not indelible lasting, because it is missing the very heart and the core of what makes biblical diversity within the family of God so wonderful and cross-centered. And as we treasure the richness of God's global family, we would do well to be reminded that we, that as we love even our own country and have a spirit of patriotism about many of us, and as we work to protect and even sustain the immense common grace components to life in our country. We need the grace to discipline our minds and our hearts to value most of all our citizenship in God's kingdom above all other loyalties. His family is everlasting, and that kingdom will not be shaken. Thirdly, adopt the heart of God for the nations. A similar idea, but our mission as a church is to magnify God's name, to worship Him, to build up His body, to edify the saints, and to find Christ's sheep, to evangelize the lost, both in our community and to the ends of the earth. We partner with missionaries all over the world who are seeking to obey the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations. Would you pray for the nations? Would you pray for those we have a tight relationship to, that we have a vested 
a heightened knowledge of their situation and allow them to be our extended family who live across the world, but we love to keep in contact with and to know how God is at work? Would you even give as our church seeks to accomplish this? Encourage one another. Encourage our young people to consider the eternal value of even potentially giving their entire lives to the cause of worldwide missions. And lastly, extend the peace of Christ in daily living. Conflict between believers is inevitable. It's coming. Friction will be the reality of life. But Jesus places a high priority on reconciliation. Even as we read in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So as sons of disobedience, the children of wrath are marked out by this kind of hostility and anger, then sons of God are marked out by peace. Jesus also exhorts us in Matthew 5 to prioritize reconciling with our brothers and sisters in Christ, touching down to our world even, even closer to home. That if our conscience is pricked, even in the midst of corporate worship, that there is a grievance, a sin towards one another, it's best to drop what we're doing and make it right. To pursue with all the with all the theological wherewithal from these ideas of the value God places in Christ on peace with one another as the demonstration of the peace He has won through Christ, go and be a peacemaker. How easy it is to sweep things under the rug, whether in our families or as in our church family. How much better to pursue one another in love, speaking the truth in love, into building one another up and making for true peace that mimics and reflects the peace that we have been shown through Christ. May God help us lift our eyes beyond our own circumstances so that we can behold the glory of what Christ has done and is doing to save a people from every nation. And may He help us love His family as our own for the glory of His name. Let's pray. Father, we come to you remembering who we were, trying not to forget just how great your grace is. Father, to be far from you is our worst nightmare. To be near to your heart through Christ is our all in all. And Lord, I pray that this assembly would understand the unity that has been wrought through the blood of Christ, that in His body He has one peace. He has accomplished what, what was promised for so long, and we are safe in Him. Thank You that we share in one spirit, access to the Father. What a thrill this is to know that our prayers, even now, are heard by you. Father, we plead that our hearts would reflect this passage, and we would have a heart for the nations. We would long 
for you to be glorified. And we long to see the day in which all nations, tribes, and tongues are assembled around your throne. And the culmination of redemptive history is ever before our eyes. And we sing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. What a thrill that will be. But in the present, Father, you called us to continually live out this kingdom-minded ethic of making for peace with one another. Help us as we seek to lead others in our community and in any way we can to true and genuine and lasting hope and peace, even as we pursue it with one another. May these themes we've considered strengthen our souls, equip us for faithful ministry this week, and all in all, measure up to the glory of your name so that you are honored in our midst. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.